0: This episode of WMFA is brought to you by Scrivener, the go to app for novelists of all kinds. Written by writers for writers, Scrivener provides you with everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Lisa Ko. Lisa is the author of The Leavers, a novel that won the 2016 Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction and was a finalist for the 2017 National Book Award for Fiction the 2018 Penn Hemingway Award, and the 2017 Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Award. Her writing has appeared in Best American Short Stories 2016, The New York Times, and elsewhere. She lives in New York City. The Leavers tells the story of Polly, a Chinese immigrant, and her son, Deming. After Polly disappears from her job at a New York City nail salon, Deming is adopted by a white couple, relocated upstate, and renamed Daniel. Writing from the perspectives of Deming and Polly, Lisa makes real both abstract ideas like home and belonging, as well as political issues like the secretive, often terrifying labyrinth of America's immigration system. I met Lisa earlier this year when we were both residents at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and I was excited to have her on the show to expand on the conversations we'd started there about our work and the writing life. Here, we talk about complicating the notions of motherhood, why working on your characters is working on yourself, and keeping the faith through seven years of novel drafts.
1: I think part of it was just like, having to recommit to my work over and over again, like just kind of seeing it as a continual process of waking up and being like, I want to do this. And and kind of realizing that, like, if I gave up, if I quit, I would feel worse than having to do it. We
0: should start with I didn't realize that this would be happening, but, you know, we are in such a horrific political moment right now with immigration and children being taken away at the border and and all of these terrible things. And I don't want to put you on the spot to comment on any of that, but I just wanted to use it as a way to think back to what was happening when you started working on the book and what first. I know there was a lot of real-life news coverage that informed the story and kind of what what first got your attention and what was happening.
1: So... I started the book about ten years ago in two thousand and nine um and I've always kind of been interested in the way that you know we speak about immigration and sort of what I feel is a lack of context about American history. you know the fact that these issues of legality are things that have always been shifting, and you know the links between immigration policy and the prison system and even family separation are nothing new right they've been around since the beginning of the country um And I'm a first-generation American. I'm a daughter of two immigrants myself. And I was really actually inspired to write the book based on, um, as you mentioned, real-life news stories about family separation. Um, There was one in particular that kind of caught my attention initially, which was about an undocumented Chinese immigrant whose name is Xu Ping Jiang. And she was found in a Florida immigration prison. She'd been there for two years, often in solitary confinement. And she had had a son who immigration authorities had separated her from. He had been adopted by a white Canadian couple. So it really just brought up a lot of horrific kind of feelings and shock and led me to find out about all these other stories where that was happening where undocumented parents were being separated from their children. And in many cases, the kids were U.S. born and American citizens, but they were being adopted by white American middle-class families and the parents were being deported or detained. So it just kind of said a lot to me about assimilation, about the way that the U.S. has a really deep um history of separating non-white families under the guise of them being unfit um or even adoption as a way to kind of save these children from their own families or their own culture and i wondered what that meant kind of wanted to write about it from the point of view of a mother and a child
0: yeah that idea that whatever any white reasonably affluent american could give a kid would be better the hubris of that is so it's so shocking
1: Yeah. And that was a lot of the language that I was reading in the news stories too. this kind of idea that adoptive families were a better fit than their families of origin. And and to me, that was like, well, what does that really mean? Does having more money make you a better fit? How much more money do you have to have? You know, and and it kind of um, just brought up a lot of questions for me that I wanted to kind of examine through my characters.
0: When you started looking at those articles did you feel like people around you were already paying attention to those stories, or did you feel like you had kind of zeroed in on stuff that was just being underreported, or forgotten, or ignored?
1: Mm. Well, they were definitely in major news publications. The article about Xi Jinping was, you know, all over the New York Times. A Times reporter named Nina Bernstein had been reporting on her um, and many other cases of immigration raids that were happening across the country and um, workplaces. So it wasn't not in the news. Um, I think for a lot of reasons, it wasn't as front and center as it is today. Um, you know, we have we have a current administration that is running on a platform of violent anti-immigration policy, right? So mm-hmm. that's something they're they're kind of bragging about, right? And I think maybe 10 years ago, that was a little more under the surface in terms of what the Obama administration was doing, even though there were huge network of for-profit immigration prisons that had been around for a long time and deportations and detentions were happening constantly. Um, it wasn't something that they were really trying to like brag about or use kind of as their brand. Right. Um, so it was something that was reported about, but I think a lot of people were not aware of it. I don't think I was aware to the extent that it was happening, which was kind of what led me to keep wanting to read and research about it. And Even, you know, in the past year, as I've been on tour and spoke to many audiences across the country, um, you know, I've had people come up and say, like, well, this doesn't happen anymore, right? Or this is historical fiction from a long time Uh, ago. So it really kind of uh, speaks to, you know, the the lack of awareness, I guess, around that. And why is there a lack of awareness, right? Um, It's not that people aren't reading. It's that maybe these things aren't necessarily being talked about in the way that they should.
0: Yeah, I loved... I can't recall now. Maybe, maybe you'll remember if this is my copy of the book has an essay by you in the back. So it, it might have been in there. It might have been another essay of yours that I that I read elsewhere. But that that exact exchange that you're describing—people coming up to you and saying, "Oh, well, this doesn't happen anymore, does it?" And that that just kind of nakedness of of wanting that reassurance. And I think that's such a huge thing right. that's happening in liberal America, you know, yeah. since 2016 of just like oh, tell us how we haven't accidentally been complicit in this the whole time.
1: You know, it's kind of part of the American project in a lot of ways, right? We're raised with this myth of America being a place where we have freedom and liberty and justice for all. And, you know, um, if there was institutional racism, it was a thing of the past a really long time ago. You know, um, immigrants can come here and, and make a life, you know, better life for themselves easily. Um, and that's sort of, narrative that we're all taught i think to sort of blind us to what's really going on
0: i know you've written or or said um again i can't remember where i read this um (laughs) that that polly is is loosely based on a woman from actual news articles and how did she kind of come to you you know was there like you you had this great phrase about all of her coming to you like in a flash
1: Hmm. yeah she originally started off actually as a short story um and in that article that I had mentioned, the woman, the real life woman, um, Xu Ping Zhang, she had been taken off a Greyhound bus traveling from New York City, to Florida, for work um, by immigration authorities. And that was how she ended up in the prison. And that just felt like a fact that was really awful, I guess, and and invisible to me. And, you know, I think when you're working with real life stories, you know, it becomes sort of an easy way to set up parameters for yourself as a fiction writer kind of going in and being like okay well you know I have this framework already set up for me I'll have a mother who is on a bus going from New York City to Florida what was it like for her right so I started kind of writing about a woman named Polly I didn't know anything about Xu Ping Zhang other than sort of the bare facts of her life Um, so Polly was a character that I sort of had to build up given my imagination given sort of trying to build a character who I believed um, would be the kind of person who would make these very risky financial, emotional, and physical choices of um, migrating to a new country on our own. And part of that was sort of based on research and knowledge I had about a lot of recent Chinese immigrants to New York City, especially ones that are undocumented because they go deep into debt. They're paying like fifty to $75,000 to basically get smuggled across the ocean to the U.S. So, you know, kind of using these facts to build a character, um, somebody that has this sort of fierce independence um, and determination, and then putting her on that bus. So that was really sort of the seed of what became the novel. Um, that story was published in a literary journal, and that sort of, gave me, you know, this confidence boost that I was like, oh yeah, maybe I should try to turn this into something that was a longer work. I was in my first semester in my MFA program and I was thinking like, yeah, I really want to write a novel. I don't know what I want to write a novel about, and it just felt like, all right, maybe here's an opportunity to kind of explore these themes and these characters further.
0: Yeah, and I love how she's such a complicated woman. She's doing a lot of things and and taking a lot of chances and making a lot of choices that aren't black and white, even though the situation, the larger situation, you know, there are so many big picture things that are clearly right and clearly wrong about what's happening to her. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love that in that context, she kind of, she's still very human and still makes you think like, well, would I have done that? Will she trying, you know, is she taking an easy way out emotionally by doing X thing or, you know, and I loved, I love to see that process with her.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of like, Wanna write the things that I wanna read in a way. And I'm just always been interested in like reading stories of women who are forced to make complicated choices and are complicated people, right? And especially like this notion of motherhood in the US as like this angelic calling where like you know, part of me was like, I wanna write a character about a woman, especially a Chinese woman who gets to have this huge crazy adventure in a way. Um, you know, her life is really hard, but she's also this really authentic human, crass, funny individual. And she loves her son, but you know, she doesn't always love the responsibilities and and sort of, um, the assumptions that she has to take on being a mother. Right. So It was like writing a character that I would want to read and maybe even want to hang out
0: with in a way. Right. Yeah. And again, I think this is something that is often robbed of women in fiction and in real life is that you're ultimately just being to yourself and that at a certain point, and especially if things get so extreme and so bad, you do kind of have to do whatever you have to do to survive emotionally, psychologically, you know, literally. Yeah, exactly. Can you talk about how Daniel, or is it is it Deming, would you say, Deming? Yeah, Deming. He was not originally as big a part of the story. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, as I mentioned, it did start off with Polly, but at some point, I think I realized like I couldn't necessarily go further with her. There was a lot of research that I did have to do about um, China, about where she was from, and so I felt a little stalled with her narrative. And then I just realized I was really also very interested in the narrative of her son, um, kind of, you know, what what is it like for him to grow up with these adoptive white parents um, in this upper middle class town where he's the only Asian kid, you know, and dealing with the trauma of his mother's disappearance. Um, in some ways, I think maybe that train, that emotional train felt a little easier almost for me to write because... Deming's adoptive parents move him from New York City to a small suburban town in upstate New York. And suburbia New York suburbia and New York City are places that are very familiar to me. So it was like, okay, I don't have to take a research trip to China in order to write about some of Deming's childhood scenes, right? So that was sort of a way to kind of put off my uncertainty about what would happen to Polly next. But I, I think it was also realizing that like I needed to have the two characters have some sort of tension between each other in order for it to be a story and not just sort of this narrative of horrible things happen to these people, right? right.
0: <laughs> yeah, they still have very classic parent-child interactions and and <laughs> fights and
1: right. You know what I really needed to get to is like being initially motivated to write about these characters and about the situations they were put in, you know, out of anger that these things were happening in the real world and kind of wanting to raise awareness about that. And then kind of soon realizing, like, you can't just write a story about that. Like, you have to write a story about the, you know, interior emotional journeys of these characters. And that means, like, building their world, building their character and figuring out what they want, what they're scared of. You know, if Deming is looking for Polly and Polly doesn't want to be found, like, what is that like?
0: What is that process like for you? Is it just writing and writing and writing and finding out what they do in, in every different situation? Or do you have other means of kind of trying to flesh out your characters psychologically?
1: I think, you know, for this book, it was more of the former. It was definitely a lot of, like, years and years of writing and then throwing writing away. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I always feel really envious of people. Do you think maybe they're lying? I don't know. Like, you know, you meet those writers who are like, yeah, I just, like, outline my stuff. And then,
0: I never trust the outliners. I really don't. Know they're totally lying no. You're totally... <laughs> and they're like yeah and I just bang out the book in like
1: six months and it's great you know I'm like whatever it's great. <laughs> you know I don't know maybe it'll be different with my next book but with this one I just felt with the leavers I was really trying to figure out how to write a book at the same time you know as I was doing it so there was a lot of kind of writing and figuring them out and then figuring out what worked by figuring out what didn't work mm. and a lot of kind of having to get rid of material that I've written in order to find the way there.
0: Do you find that when you're in that process of getting rid of stuff and you finally do kind of hit that delete button, I find this so often where I'm just like, if I had been a little bit more, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more honest with myself. Sometimes it's just like a little bit more mindful or aware or whatever. It's like that felt off. Something about that always felt off to me, you know?
1: So, like, looking back, you realize that, like, it wasn't working in the first place?
0: Well, I think it's hard generally to know, like, am I just not, am I, have I not persevered enough yet to crack the thing, or am I just forcing something that's not working?
1: Yeah. No, it is really hard, and it's one of those things that you also can't really rush, because you kind of need perspective on it in some ways, right? Um, at least for me, like, it's, I have to write it to figure it out. Like, I have to write it to figure out it doesn't work. Which feels, you know, really terribly inefficient. Oh, it's incredibly
0: inefficient. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's, like, like no other way to do it.
1: Yeah, there's no other way to do it. It's not like writing wizard will come down and be like this is the way just do it here's a set of index cards go you know
0: (laughs) yeah this this drives me really crazy because like in every other aspect of my life I try to be as like streamlined as possible and I'm like what can I do while I'm doing this how can I maximize all of my seconds and then it's just like oh but also my job is just horrifically inefficient it's just like (laughs) a completely leaky boat
1: yeah I mean you know that's that's the process right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was really excited to talk to you about place also, because that is something that is endlessly fascinating to me as a writer. And I really loved the way that you approached it in The levers and the way that the characters kind of just had such bodily responses to 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 just a setting and then to, you know, their comfort level in that setting. And, and I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about how that part of it came together. Do you feel like that's much like how you experience places?
1: Hmm. Um, you know, I feel like as I kept writing the book, I kind of realized like the themes tend to coalesce the more you write about it. Um, it's hard to kind of set out in the beginning and be like, I want to write a book about home and belonging. Right. more mm-hmm. <laughs> like as you figure out the story, you you realize looking back that you are writing a book about home and belonging, for instance. So I think because the theme of what is home is like such a big part of the book, that kind of reflects the way that home and, and place and city are so vivid and integral to my characters, um, like, and how they see themselves, how others see themselves, you know, even their sense of kind of fulfillment and happiness, right? And, and in a lot of ways, I feel like it's a book that's kind of a love letter to New York City. Deming feels most at home there. It's a place that he has to leave, it's a place that Polly comes to and then has to leave as well. Um, And, you know, maybe in some ways it's a place that's really easy for me to write about since I live here. Um, And I find kind of great joy in that, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, writing about Deming's um, suburban hometown in Ridgeboro was kind of a way to show his alienation through place. Right. Sort of contrast between this very quiet suburban neighborhood with trees and big houses to the kind of like noise and pollution and crowds of New York.
0: Yeah. I love that both Polly and Deming have this experience of watching themselves and they have it in very different ways, but like, I love, I love how Deming approaches Ridgeboro as just like, as him being some alien that he's been sent on like a mission to, to study. Uh
1: Right. Yeah, that's like his coping mechanism.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And and just like that that whole idea of of double selves and like the ways that like you have to perform and I don't know, I really loved it was really, really striking to me. But later on in the book, I don't want to give anything away. But you know, he's talking to some Chinese people and they don't understand the concept of being like an ethnic American or like mm-hmm. Chinese American or Italian American. And when he says the food is Italian American, they're like, well, "I don't understand what that means." Yeah. Um, yeah. And that idea of just like how, when you take it out of kind of the American context, how how hard that is to actually kind of wrap your brain around this idea of like having a foot in both places.
1: Yeah, and I think that the the way that both Debing and Polly are seen by others, and um, both the U.S. and in China and both the city and upstate um, and how they see themselves sort of something that plays out throughout the book, right? They even with like their name changes, for instance, you know, there's a chapter where Deming first arrives in Ridgeboro with his adoptive parents and they call him Daniel, but he calls himself Deming. And it's sort of that dislocated feeling that I can imagine for children who go through that experience is is really Confusing and alienating, and kind of what is it like for people to see you as this person that you don't believe you are?
0: Right. What has the process been like for you of promoting the book as an Asian American writer? Do you feel like you're getting, you know, do you get like conflated with the story a lot and, and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, you no, know, I don't know if it's different for writers of other races and ethnicities, but it's definitely been something that, you know, people have asked. I think there's always this kind of you know, confusing, maybe demand for, you know, fiction writers to have to clarify how much of it is really fiction. (laughs) There's autobiography, I want to know, you know, maybe that's just kind of like, people really want to know who these writers are. Um, Did you really go through this experience? How did you write about it? But I think there's there's a really great quote, I think, by Roxane Gay, who says something like wanting to, like, demand that, is sort of it's it's not only kind of taking away from the craft of actually writing fiction but it makes for a more impoverished reading experience yes <laughs> yes <laughs> I love to, that what a great way to say it yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's always, it's been something that I've been asked in some ways you know is this my yeah. family story you know I always try to clarify like it's not my family story I'm writing about people who are very different from me even though I was interested in writing about this because these themes are things that I resonated with. You know, yeah, I've also, you know, I've been around the country, so I've spoken to a lot of just various and different audiences with um, different political views and different backgrounds. They've all had, you know, interesting and different reactions to the book, too.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the reactions have been? I mean, I think,
1: you know, in maybe more conservative political areas, there's just been a lot of shock that this is even happening mm. right a lot of it is just like wait wait what like you know we put immigrants in prison what what I've never heard of this um and so you kind of have to start from there right, right. and it's a really different experience than maybe talking to people who are you know from an immigrant background or maybe more, are more um politically active and are aware of this long history for instance so yeah you know it's been been interesting i had the really amazing experience of speaking to um a book club that was all fujinese immigrant women. oh wow (laughs) a few weeks ago and it was really amazing like did they like
0: reach out to you it was through um it was actually
1: through something that the national book foundation does which kind of meets with community um reading groups and they have like teaching artists and they bring in different readers um different authors to talk about their work so yeah, it was an incredible opportunity. Um, I remember feeling, like, a little nervous when I realized they were all um, Fujinese, where I was like, oh, no, did I get it wrong? Right. Like, <laughs> <you know? laughs> and this one woman was like, why did you write about us? Like, that was her first question. So. And I was like, yeah, you know, but it turned out that, you know, a lot of them were just, like, really connected strongly with the story, um, you know, saw some of the characters and their situations in in people that they knew in real life. So yeah, it was it was really incredible.
0: This episode of WMFA is brought to you by Scrivener. Tailor-made for long projects, Scrivener's is like an extension of my brain at this point in the novel writing process. I talk to myself in drafts, probably too much, using comments and inline annotations, and I avoid my fear of the delete button with the snapshot feature, which lets me save drafts before making changes. Scrivener is as organized as I wish I were. It lets me change the structure of my ever-sprawling manuscript easily and view it large-scale on the corkboard feature, or small-scale, line-by-line. I also love the robust labeling system, which I currently have color-coded according to character point of view, so that I can see at a glance if my narrative is out of balance. But that's just my process. Whether you plan out your structure first or dive in, draft, and then restructure later, the integrated outliner and corkboard allow Scrivener to bend to work your way. Scrivener unites everything you need to write, research, and arrange long documents in one single powerful app. At its heart is a simple ring binder metaphor that allows you to gather material and flick between different parts of your manuscript, notes, and references with ease. And once your draft is complete, you can export to a variety of popular formats for publication or submission. WMFA listeners can get 20% off a regular copy of Scrivener for Windows or Mac OS. Just use the code WMFA at checkout at www.literatureandlatte.com. I want to jump back a little bit to the just kind of writing process of the book because, you know, as you mentioned, you you took this research trip to China. And when the essay of yours that, that I read about that, you talked about how you know Polly had kind of stalled for you. Um I think that trip was so striking to me because I struggle so much with legitimizing that this is what I want to do and what I'm doing and like I'm like, well, booking a trip around the world would do it. Like that's a pretty that's a pretty formalizing tactic. Um so I was just so taken by that idea um cuz it takes it so seriously, of course. It takes the novel so seriously. Um but can you just talk a, a little bit about that decision and and sort of what had happened to make you sort of stall out with her at that point
1: yeah you know I think part of it was that sort of anxiety about not wanting to get things wrong Mm -hmm. um and as writers we do have a really great responsibility when we're writing about experiences and people that aren't us to try to get it right you know because it sucks when people get things wrong I feel it also makes for like better craft right like if I know that when I'm reading something about like say New York or, or New Jersey or someplace I'm familiar with and it doesn't feel you when you realize it's not like factually correct or emotionally correct like it totally takes you out of the story yeah. right so the way that I'm like I don't want to do that to like a reader well at this point it was like year two in the writing process so even the idea of ever having a reader felt really far fetched. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so I know that, you know, I felt very intimidated by writing about China, which was a country that I, you know, had visited like once before as a tourist and, you know, that I didn't really know a lot about and about, you know, a particular region um, and city there that I'd never been to. So, yeah, I had a, you know, I had a bunch of like frequent flyer miles and I had I had some like time off work and I had the um, privilege to be able to kind of Loop it into a larger trip. So as you mentioned, it wasn't. It was like that was part of it. And then I remember I went to a beach in Thailand for another week. <laughs> that kind of helped me like justify um, taking that time away and, yeah. and spending money and everything. But yeah, so you know I ended up going to Fuzhou City in Fujian Province, which is where the majority of contemporary Chinese immigrants um, or immigrants from China in New York City are from, and. I based Polly's hometown on um, a town that I had read about that was, I think, frequently profiled in the Times and some other publications um, about 10 years ago as just this small village outside of Fuzhou City, which had this, like, huge sending population of migrants to New York City. Um, It was kind of, you know, mostly emptied of adults that were, were of working age. Most of them had migrated, and there were just, like, all these empty mansions in the town because the people who had migrated to the US were sending back money um, to their parents who were left behind and they would sort of build these their, their families would build these large houses that nobody would live in um, kind of as status symbols mm. um, and and so it was like elderly and small children were there because the parents were working really long hours and were deep in debt and ended up Um, In a lot of ways, in a lot of cases, sending their young children back to stay with their parents, with their families, kind of for free, um, instead of paying for childcare until the kids were old enough to come back to the U.S. and go to school. So, you know, it just seemed like a really kind of sociologically interesting place, Mm -hmm. you know, a way that really illustrated... Um, how global migration has this huge impact, you know, both economically and like psychologically on these families. So I ended up finding that um, village, which is not called Minjian, which is what I called it in the book. And it was, yeah, it was actually really moving to finally see and like walk along the streets of a place that I had only read about and imagined. And same with Fuzhou city where Polly ends up um, at the end of the levers or in the middle of the book, um, you know, I think it provided a sense of reassurance in a way that whatever I wrote about these places could be fact-checked, at least visually, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, and and I could see them in the places because I knew what those places were like, right? right? So I could share, like, how my character would walk down the street, what would that street smell like, what would she see, and given that these are the things on the street, maybe she would go here, you know, if she went there, would that, how would that change, like, the scene or the plot? So, yeah it really fed I think part of that creative process
0: did it sort of revive your writing in terms of what you felt like had stalled yeah definitely
1: definitely I knew that I wanted to write partly about her return to China and I just didn't know like what that would be like for her and I ended up having an experience where I had to um I had the the contact information for a family friend's aunt and uncle who lived in Fuzhou. And and after a long week of miscommunication issues, because I didn't speak Fujinese and she didn't speak English, I finally was able to meet meet up with them and and actually go to their apartment. So I ended up kind of basing Polly and Young's apartment on their apartment, because it was like a nice apartment that I happened to see and go into in Fuzhou, And, you know, <laughs> like, that, like yeah, and, like, kind of opened up all these ideas for me in terms of, like, oh, what would their lifestyle be like? Who would their friends be? What would they go out to eat? Where would they work? Um, and that kind of helped build the story for her.
0: Yeah, and I and I think that's such a rich element because I think it's so easy for Americans to equate Immigrants with the type of work that they have to do when they arrive. Mm-hmm. And I love that she just, you know, she has a successful middle class career like she doesn't because yeah. she's an intelligent human being, you know, it's like she's yeah. not, she's just not like what she had to kind of the, the hole she had to fit through to get into the United States.
1: Yeah, and she has a really atypical
0: journey, too. Sure, sure. I want to circle back to, uh, you mentioned it being the second year of the writing process, and this this took 10 years, did you say? It took about
1: seven. Seven? um, Yeah, in terms of the
0: writing. Can you talk about that and how you didn't throw it away (laughs) and give up? (laughs)
1: Yeah, you know, I came close to throwing it away many times. I, I think, you know, there was definitely a point where I knew I needed to either quit or keep going. I feel like maybe that was around year year five. Um and you know, it's it's really hard to write a book when nobody's waiting for it but yourself. You know, you have to sort of keep up, you have to like be the person who encourages yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is which is really hard when the world is basically, you know, when we live in a place that doesn't value artists, right? In so many ways i think part of it was just like having to recommit to my work over and over again like just kind of seeing it as a continual process of waking up and being like i want to do this and and kind of realizing that like, if I gave up, if I quit, I would feel worse than having to do it.
0: <laughs> yes. Like, you yeah. you say that, I, I think, in, in an essay for Lit Hub, and it was so, and I think you're also quoting another writer, um, Yeah, but That's- that idea of it, it really just being a lesser of <laughs> two evils thing, it's like, well, this sucks, but it's going to suck so much worse if I just don't do it.
1: Yeah, that quote by the author Matthew Thomas, like, actually really, I think was really one of the things that led me to keep going at a time where I actually deleted, like, a year's worth of work at one point, and I knew that I had to, like, start over from scratch in some ways, because Mm -hmm. so much of it, like we were talking about before, didn't work. And it was like, I could either spend another, like, seven years writing this novel that I know deep in my gut doesn't work, and at the end of it have... A crappy novel that doesn't work. Or I could like, start from scratch. And it was really gonna suck to rewrite it over. But at least I'll do it in a way that I know is the right way. You know?
0: Yeah, this is something that I think about so often with writing. Because, you know, I feel like we're in such a moment of like, Oh, just do what you love. And everything will fall into place. And you know, like those sorts <laughs> of like dreamy platitudes. And I'm like, what? What is so in it like doesn't apply here is that Writing most of the time is terrible, and I don't think that I feel that way because I'm not good at it or I shouldn't be doing it. I think it's because it's terrible.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think also living in the hyper-capitalist America is, is really feeds into that. You know, like, all jobs are terrible and hard. Some are enormously hard. You know, I feel like sitting on my ass in front of my laptop, all things considered, is not really that hard. Totally. But at the same time, it's like, being, like, a fiction writer isn't something that you can normally just, like go get a regular paycheck for it, get benefits for it, you know? And, and so, like, you're kind of dealing with that lack of, like, financial security and stability and, and that kind of, the way that we see our worth is often through, like, what we earn and also, like, how can we provide for our lives, right? So I think that feeds into the difficulty of it, right, um, because, of, because of the fact that, like, writing isn't something that we have those, the same trappings of other traditional work.
0: Yeah, what were you doing this whole time? I was doing a lot of jobs.
1: Um, I was like an adjunct writing teacher um, for universities. I was a freelance journalist. I did a lot of copy editing. Um, I think for the last three or four years of the book, I had like a full-time job working in, working, um, in digital marketing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just regular office job. would <laughs> write my time off.
0: A conversation that I remember us having at VCCA that I've thought a lot about since because this is just like a thing that I think about a lot is like how much you should ask your art to support you and whether it is just kind of better to be doing other work that you can kind of compartmentalize and cash the checks for and not really like I think for a long time for me especially once I went full-time freelance I equated success with like all of my money coming from my writing Mm -hmm. but like that just makes you write a lot of crap that you don't care about and then like that's a really hard tangent to divert yourself back off of rather than just like I don't know I feel like sometimes like if it's a different category it's actually much easier to kind of make peace with yeah I think it's true I mean you know I think part of it
1: is also like having to prioritize the work that means the most to you right like I knew like okay you know if I committed to Being a fiction writer, I prioritize that. It's like everything that I would have to do in my life would have to then be to better enable that, Mm -hmm. right? And I knew, you know, with my past job experience, if I was, like, writing all day long at work doing anything, you know, doing copywriting, doing journalism, like, I would have nothing left to write fiction. because it's so similar. It's so similar, right? Like, there's only so much I can look at a computer, there's only so much I can look at text. Um, So I think having a job that wasn't necessarily 100% writing based that, you know, I wasn't being enormously ambitious for I think I had to partly give up my own career ambition in a Mm way. Like, I'm going to be, you know, ambitious with my fiction writing, right? That makes sense. But I'm not going to be like, gutting for some like, director position at work that makes me actually like want to, need to put in a lot more time and energy. So yeah, you know, it's figuring out what works for you. It's like, does having that regular paycheck at a job that maybe isn't that demanding give you more time and energy to be able to write your fiction?
0: Right. And did you go for an MFA at some point in that process as well? Or was that before the book had started?
1: I actually started the book or the story about Polly my first semester um, at my MFA program. So that was like fall of 2009.
0: Mm-hmm. And now are you writing full time? I mean, I feel like I've just been
1: on tour full time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I,
1: I've been like fortunate to be able to make a living from the book and from doing, um, various, teaching and speaking engagements and I taking on some freelance projects here and there. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I think now that I have more free time, I have to kind of reassess um, what happens next.
0: Yeah. You had this Instagram post about that, that I really loved on like the first anniversary of the book and talking about, you know, that hustle of publishing and promoting and all of the various layers of guilt that you felt associated with that. And I really loved that and i want to definitely link to it on the episode page but could you also maybe just kind of talk about how you processed all of that and and what that experience has been like just kind of going going nonstop about this yeah
1: you know it's such a really radically different job and i think in a lot of ways you know writing is something that is really solitary and like silent and like you know Touring and promoting is, in some ways, very solitary, but it is not silent. So it's kind of like, as writers, what we do is is very much, like, in a private space. And then when you're doing the promotion part of it and and the reading part of it, it's, like, a really big public performance. And I think for a lot of writers, you know, definitely for myself, it's not my natural state (laughs) that it's taken to be, like, hyper extroverted all the time. I love meeting people. I love talking to people, but I also, you know, I definitely need downtime. Right. So kind of doing it again and again and again, like with no break is, is really hard for me. Yeah. Um, You
0: use this uh, phrase vulnerability (laughs) hangovers that I loved and also completely (laughs) identified with. I was like, I mean, not obviously from a book tour, but just like that, that degree of like, okay, this is what happens when I don't recalibrate.
1: Yeah. Right. Definitely. And that's like, you know, I think, too, like, maybe going back to what we talked about, about, you know, this demand for fiction writers to kind of show our own lives and how autobiographical influences have impacted our work. You know, we you want to connect to people by kind of showing yourself, right? But at the same time, it's like a lot of these questions and these, like, conversations about yourself um mm-hmm. it, it can definitely feel very vulnerable being on, be on stage and kind of having those exchanges with large audiences um and and then kind of like trying to like recalibrate back to your regular life or even your creative life
0: yeah you also mentioned in that post coming to terms with the reality that it's not just yours anymore
1: mm. has that
0: been was that difficult for you i don't
1: think of it as mine anymore now a year out i think in the very beginning, it definitely did feel a bit like a sense of loss, right? Um, Also, kind of, you know, a little bit of anxiety about how it would be received. And to like, even know that people were reading it, like, at at the beginning, was like, completely freaking me out. (laughs) Something that only you had seen, and then maybe only a handful of other people had seen. And then now it's like, oh, it's in a bookstore. It's like, you know, people, hundreds, thousands of people have access to see it and to read it, um, right. and yeah, it definitely feels like a sense of exposure.
0: I'm reminded, my friend just sent me this tweet the other day from the writer Anna Fitzpatrick that was like, the reason my novel is taking so long is because I also have to write a second decoy novel for my parents to read. <laughs> That's
1: hilarious. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it is definitely even more exposing when it's people that you know who've read the book. <laughs>
0: Well, let's chat a little bit about how you like to write. I know we obviously met at a residency. Is that your kind of preferred way to to get work done in big bursts like that? Or
1: I think it depends on what stage of the process I'm in, and also my schedule. You know, um, I'm definitely I'm not somebody who writes every day, and I don't feel bad about it. I think we're all busy, and I think in an ideal world, I would wake up earlier than I do and um, (laughs) right first thing in the morning I I think that you know oddly over the years I I used to be like a really unrepentant night owl and right at night but now I'm just like yeah I feel clearer first thing in the morning and there's a way that kind of getting it out of the way frees up the rest of the day Mm. so it's not over me so it's like whatever stage I'm at, at the process I'll try to kind of plan for what I'll do the next day and be like okay you're gonna work on this scene or you'll you'll write like x amount of words or you'll try to edit this page or whatever it is um do that for whatever amount of time that I have two or three hours whatever you know and then you're done <laughs> and if I have more time then I can like do more you know part of the process is also like reading other writers reading other books research that kind of thing
0: of course yeah I think you're, you have a really healthy attitude about like, you don't feel bad about not writing every day because there's a lot of shit to do. And similarly, like, I think I can be just quite rigid with myself about like, well, this is what you have to do for it to have been a good day or whatever. And and then a couple of weeks ago, I went to this meditation workshop that my friend, my friend hosted at her yoga studio and the guy was talking about how you should like stop using timers to meditate. And he was like, even if you just meditate for like a minute, but you're like there for that minute, like, that's great. And so I've been trying to apply that thinking uh, to just kind of say like, okay, just be in it until you're not in it anymore or whatever.
1: Yeah. No, that's a really good point. I remember I met the author, Stephanie Powell Watts, and she mentioned that she tried to just do a tiny little bit every day on whatever project she was working on. It might not be even more than a sentence, Mm. but like the feeling of returning to it in some ways, touch base with it. So she felt, Connected to it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense." Because I realized that when I do take too much time off from it, I will have forgotten everything. And yeah, I, and to like take another week to relearn. Like,
0: oh, what was I doing again? Like, you know, what did this note that I leave to myself mean? Like, that's a yeah. that's a big one for me. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I'm like, I always try to do if I can, like something, even though it's you it, it, it might not even be writing. It might just be like, oh, I'm reading um, a chapter in this
0: book. That's part of my research. Totally. So, yeah, a thing that I've kind of noticed, I've only kind of recently become conscious of is, like, a good barometer for me, if I'm not spending enough time with it, is when I'm when I'm no longer, like, thinking of things in completely different contexts. Like, if I'm not, like, making notes to myself, like, if I'm not remember, like, thinking of something in, like, at the grocery store, like, that kind of thing, then it's mm-hmm. just kind of, like, not present enough in my brain hmm Right. That makes sense. But how do you like to write? Like are you are you a longhand person? Or are you a, a scrivener word document person? You
1: no, know, I I'm like in this really obsessive part of my next project now, which is like something that I've been finding writing and researching for over a year, but still finding my way towards. And I just have so many notes. And and I, I keep dreaming of this bucolic writing paradise where I'm just obsessive with it and I'm able to be in it all the time, which may or may not ever happen. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, I keep trying to do these things to get myself there. So I've been keeping a notebook that I write longhand. I have my notes app on my iPhone. I have like, at one point I printed stuff out. And I actually just spent the morning, well, I spent all of last week putting together a giant Excel spreadsheet with notes from like 30 different Word documents. Whoa. And then I took everything out of a Scrivener document a few months ago and put it into Word documents. And then this morning, I opened another blank Scrivener project, a new one, and I put all the Word documents back <laughs> into it. Why am
0: I doing this? <laughs> Why are you doing
1: that? <laughs> I know. I just, I, you know what, I think like I'm somebody who's really allergic to clutter and I feel yeah. like need things to be in place so i can get to work and i don't know if it's just me like procrastinating or like procrastinating because i haven't figured out how to move forward and i'm hoping that by doing this somehow clarity will magically arrive
0: (laughs) i do definitely understand that impulse of like whatever way i had organized this material before i just need to blow it up and start over with a clean (laughs) fresh document i definitely get that
1: better now like you know the original script or document had like 30 files in it now there's like
0: five <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk at all about what that project is is it still too much of a baby
1: no it's yeah you know I think maybe 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 with the next scrivener or excel spreadsheet I'll right kind of...
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so re- is research usually a pretty big part of your process
1: I think it can be yeah definitely I, I also I feel like there's only so much I can do out of my own brain yeah <laughs> yes like, <laughs> you have to feed it, it's like you have to constantly feed it and, and part of that can be like really directed research like oh I'm going to take this research trip or I'm going to do this interview like I did kind of fact checking interviews for pretty much everything in the Leavers um, mm. and spoke to like all kinds of people that had, had those actual experiences but also it can be I think like feeding it through like art and music and movies and you know kind of even thinking about style like what, what's the kind of feeling that I want to like make the reader feel what kind of art mimics that feeling? I don't know.
0: Mm. It's really striking to me what a great, healthy outlook you have on like, like, l- like you're saying, these are not things that our capitalist society values. And so that's just been such a, a big part of my problem personally. And and you just have such a great attitude about like, I don't know, this is the work and this is what you have to do to make it the best thing that it can be. And all of these, I don't know, I'm just enjoying hearing you talk about that process.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it, what the other option is just not doing it. Right? Yeah,
0: right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Totally. This is going back to something that we talked about earlier a little bit, but um, I loved. It. First of all, you have the best author bio like I've ever seen on your website. Like, <laughs> it's so good. And I had forgotten that you were a triple Scorpio. I remember this being a big oh, thing. Yeah. <laughs> very, very, very <laughs> um, but I wanted to. I really, uh, I really was struck by this line that you had about coming to asian writers and asian american writers and then realizing that you really hadn't read much of them and questioning why all of your stories thus far had been about white characters mm-hmm. that just really struck me i think because so many women also i feel like myself included maybe have that moment where they're like why am i writing about men so much and and so mm-hmm. i i just wanted to ask you more about that realization and kind of that seems like a huge moment a huge moment of realization in one's path as a writer.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like, you know, I was a really obsessive reader as a kid. I've been just reading nonstop all my life. Um, And, you know, it really makes a huge, like, psychological impact on you if you're reading things about people who are not like you, right? And it's kind of, you never see yourself as kind of centered in the work or, or, like whoever the characters who are like you are people who have a very particular path right it's like you know growing up reading all these stories about male heroes for instance and then it's like who do i identi- do i identify with the male hero and i want to because i want to go on all these great adventures but then the girl is the one who stays at home and waits for him like mm-hmm. so i'm mm-hmm. like oh okay, that's my role you know right like so yeah it really you know messes us up i think as young readers to kind of have that and and in a way like we read to figure out like who we can be, like who we can become, you know, we, we read to like find out the answers, right? So yeah, it was really transformative, I think, um, for me to, you know, first be introduced to the world of writers that weren't white men, <laughs> like right. Asian American writers in particular, and, and writers writing in translation, and just kind of seeing all these possibilities, I think, not only to understand myself and my family, but also like, possibilities for myself and even possibilities for myself as a writer right to be like oh yeah this woman who's also from an immigrant family wrote this book she's the author you know Mm -hmm. like yeah you've been writing since you were five years old but look guess what maybe you could be a writer so right
0: was that something that you felt you saw like a marked difference in in your writing after that where you kind of like found more of your voice hmm Yeah,
1: I definitely think so. I'm trying to think back. I feel, you know, I think maybe in college, I sort of had the experience of, like many of us kind of becoming politicized in a way that I hadn't been before and kind of opening up to different artists and writers and sort of, you know, I think for a long time, I was working out some of that stuff through fiction, right? A lot of times we use our Art as a way to work out our own issues. So much of it is really tied to ourselves. Um, Absolutely. You know, so, uh, you know, writing things that were kind of vaguely autobiographical, for instance, or you know, writing about characters I was familiar with as a way to sort of process my own
0: life. You had this line in your in an essay on Lit Hub about your characters being closed off because you are, and that really resonated with oh, me yeah, too. Right? Yeah, I was like, "Yep, bullseye." It's true. It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, maybe that's why, you know, it takes so long, right? Like, because so much of the work that I feel like I've had to do has been on myself. You absolutely. Know? Uh, it's not as simple as just like sitting down and like writing. I remember my mom being like, But it only takes me like a few hours to write a page. Like, why would it take you seven years to write? This book? <laughs> and she was just thinking, like, oh, yeah, when she sits down and writes like an email, or right
0: yeah. You know?
1: <laughs> Like, oh well, you know, I have to, like, hate myself. Right. And, and like, get therapy, you
0: know. (laughs) So there's the whole climbing out onto the ledge takes a minute and then... Yeah, yeah. you got to do that
1: for, like, two, three
0: years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll wrap up asking you the question I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, which is what does creative satisfaction look like to you right now?
1: You know, I think I often fantasize about that feral state of writing, something that sometimes you can get at a residency where you're just able to just be in your work for a moment of time. It could be anywhere from a few hours to a day or a few days. I think, you know, just sort of feeling like I've fed that creative part of me and that I'm able to then kind of output it into my work in whatever way that means.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. And find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBalestier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC, all rights reserved.